you're finding your place in your Bible. Make an observation with you if I could. It appears that one of the, the biggest lies of our day and age is this belief that it makes no difference really what you believe or what you practice as long as you're sincere in your pursuit of that truth for you. I mean, that, 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 that statement expresses the, the personal philosophy of many people in our day and age. But it's doubtful whether or not the, those that make that statement or, or make that claim have really thought that statement all the way through and given consideration to the implication of that belief that it really doesn't matter just as long as you're sincere in what you practice. Because if sincerity, I mean, is it really the, the magical ingredient that makes something true? If so, then, then sincerity would be that special ingredient to make something true, not just in the world of religion, but in other aspects of our lives. I mean, think about it. If a nurse sincerely wants to help to relieve the pain of a patient, and in the sincerity of the heart, the nurse decides to give that patient that is struggling some, some medicine to relieve their pain, not knowing that the, the patient has an, an, an allergy to the medicine. And so the sincerity of the nurse, I mean, uh, the nurse's heart is pure and, and they sincerely want to be of assistance, but the medicine that they're giving is bad. If that patient were to become violently ill or if the patient were to die as a result of the malpractice of the nurse, would the sincerity of the nurse remove that nurse from any guilt? No, absolutely not. It takes more than sincerity in order to make something true. And John knew that he was in for a battle for the truth. And that's the battle that is still being fought today. If false teachers continue to infiltrate the church, then the church will continue to grow indistinguishable from the world in which we live. And that's precisely the tragedy that John is trying to address. It is the tragedy that he saw for his people at that time. And it's a tragedy that's still being played out in our world today. And so my prayer for all of us is that God would give us ears to hear his truth. Give us a heart that desires to make changes in our life and to give us the strength that we might walk in faithful obedience to the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. Now, John has already warned us about conflict. He, he's talked from the very beginning of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse number 8. He's talked about the conflict that exists between light and darkness. And then in chapter 2, verses, uh, I'm sorry, verses 7 through 17, 
He talks about the conflict that exists between love and hate. And here in our text this morning, he's going to mention a third conflict, and that conflict is the conflict that exists between truth and error. So it's not enough for a child of God to walk in light. It's not enough for it just to walk in love. We must walk in light, walk in love, and we must walk in the truth. So John explains the seriousness of this issue by, by, by sharing two special terms in our text this morning. Those two special terms are the terms of the, the last hour and his term that he uses, the Antichrist. So let me just kind of break those down for us to give us a, a better understanding of what John's trying to address. We start with the last hour. The last hour is a distinct period of time of uncertain length. It's a distinct period of time, but there is an uncertain length to that time. So the last hour is not a short period of time. It is a distinct period of uncertain length. When we read through the scriptures, we understand that the time of Adam was not the last hour. The time of Abraham, not the last hour. The time of Moses, the time of David, the time of King Solomon, not the last hour. The last hour specifically is the time that is between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So we are currently living in the last hour. So he introduces us to that term, and then he also uses the term Antichrist. John is the only of the writers that uses that term. You'll only find it, you'll only find that word in John's writing. And so when John uses that term or that word, there are a couple of different meanings for it. I'll give you three. So that word Antichrist can be used to describe a spirit that's in the world that is opposed to Christ or a spirit that's in the world that denies Christ. So the spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world ever since uh, Satan took battle against God in the garden from Genesis chapter 3. The spirit of the Antichrist is behind every false doctrine and every religious substitute uh, to Christianity. So there's the spirit of the Antichrist. Sometimes that term is used to describe false teachers who embody that spirit. And then there is a time where that word is used to describe a specific person, an individual who will head up uh, the final world rebellion against God. That word Antichrist, that, that, that prefix to that anti. Uh, it can mean, in the Greek, it can mean either against or instead of. It has a dual meaning. So uh, the term Antichrist is instead of Christ or in opposition or against Christ. And so the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world today. The spirit of the Antichrist not only is in, in the world today, it will eventually lead us to a, uh, a satanic superman, if you will, who will, who will lead in the final rebellion against God. Now John calls this individual the Antichrist. Paul refers to this individual as the son of destruction or the son of lawlessness. And so as we look at our text this morning, we need to remember that we are living in the last hour. 
And in this last hour to which we live in, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work and is in opposition against Christ. So it is vitally important that we know and that we believe the truth so that we can be able to detect the lies that come to us from the adversary. In order for us to have a better understanding or in order for us to be able to detect these lies, uh, John very uh, thankfully gives us some distinguishing marks of false teachers. So I'm going to share with you three of them this morning. The first distinguishing mark of a false teacher is that they depart from the fellowship. They depart from the fellowship. Verse number 19 says that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Now that word us is referring to the fellowship of believers, the ecclesia, the, the, the church. And, and so not everyone, check this out, not everyone who is a part of the assembling together of the church is actually belongs to the fellowship of the church. Not everyone that gathers in the building, even of First Baptist Kingsland, not everyone who gathers inside this building is actually a member of the family of God. And so John made clear there's a distinct separation that exists between those that left and those that remain. And in fact, he uses the pronouns they and us. They refers to those that left the gathering. Us refers to those that remained with the gathering. And so John repeated that they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Their departure from the fellowship showed that they never belonged to the fellowship in the first place. One of the evidences of, of being born of God is that there is a desire to be with the people of God. And so later in, in chapter 3, uh, John will write these words. He, so, he says that we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. One of the evidence that one has truly been born of God is that there is a love for one another. There is a love for other believers, other members of the family of God. There's that love because we share something unique with each other. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 4, tells us that we share the same divine nature. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, it says not only do we share that same divine nature, it's the Holy Spirit that, that dwells within us. And, and so as members of the family of God, we have a spiritual connection because we share the Holy Spirit. And as uh, members of the family of God, then we should have a desire to be together for fellowship, for worship, for church. I mean, one of the things that hopefully these past 10 or 11 weeks, I think we're at 11 weeks now since we started the stay home, stay safe order back in March. One of the things that I hope is happening within you is that 
this separation should be stirring within us a, a holy discontent because this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what it's supposed to look like. This isn't church the way it's meant to be. But my fear is that some people are getting awfully comfortable in this routine. And so even as though, even though we've opened the doors to the church, then this is the, the third week or so, fourth week, I don't know. All the weeks run together now. Even though we, we opened the, the, the doors to the church and we're trying to practice safety and social distancing and, and, and volunteers wearing masks and giving hand sanitizers, although we'll try to cover everything that we can to alleviate any fear or frustration that one might have, my fear is that people have grown too comfortable staying at home. And you know why they're comfortable staying at home? It's because they foolishly think that church is simply attending a service. There's more to church than just showing up to hear a message. It's the gathering. The gathering of believers. The gathering so that we come together, we build each other up, we encourage one another, we teach one another, we train one another, we pray with one another, we hold one another ac accountable. We gather together so that we can be scattered, so that we can go, we can share the gospel, so that we can tell about the love of God to all people, so that we can come back together to gather again. So it's gathering, it's scattering, it's gathering, it's scattering. There's more to it than just listening to a message. Child of God and other children of God, we share that spiritual connection of the Holy Spirit. And that connection should, should create within us a desire and a longing for us to be together, to worship together, to encourage one another, to serve Together. So when John says that they went out, but they were not really of us, John is in no way trying to imply that staying in church is one of the ways that you can assure your salvation. He's not making that connection at all. What he's saying and indicating is that those who remain in the fellowship are giving evidence to the truth that they have been personally born of God. And so one of the marks of a false teacher is that they depart from the fellowship. The second mark would be that they deny the faith. They deny the faith. Pick up in verse number 20. It says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One. You all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us. The promise is eternal life. Now go back to verse number 20 real quick. Uh, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Now in the Old Testament, it was the prophets, the priests, and the kings. They were the ones 
that received an anointing. They were anointed by having oil poured upon their head. That oil symbolized the Spirit of God coming on them for service. Such anointing in the Old Testament was a privilege of only a few chosen individuals. Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus changes all of it. Jesus was anointed at his baptism, not with the symbol of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit himself. And so what John is saying is that this same anointing is no longer just the possession of a few chosen individuals. No, this anointing is the possession of every single child of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. I want you to understand this morning that the Holy Spirit is a believer's protective force, if you will, against the, the spirit of Antichrist, against a false teaching. Now we're going to come back to verse number 20 a little bit later. But right now, I think what we need to consider and the key questions that not only should the believer answer, but all people need to answer. And that key question is, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus to you? I mean, is Jesus merely an example for you to follow? Is Jesus a good man that you should pay attention to? Is Jesus a great teacher? that one ought to listen to? Or is Jesus God come in the flesh? How do you answer that question? Not all pastors, not all preachers, not all teachers who claim to be Christian are actually Christian in their theology. To be clear, if they confess that Jesus Christ is come from God, in the flesh, then they belong to the true faith. If they deny that Jesus is God who come in the flesh, then they don't belong to the faith. It's the spirit of the Antichrist that, that is leading and controlling that teaching. And so if they deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, then they belong to the Antichrist. To confess that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh involves much more than simply making a statement. True confession involves a personal response, a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So a confession of faith is not just an intellectual, theological statement that one can recite. It goes much deeper than that. A true confession of faith is a personal declaration of your recognition, of your acceptance, and your submission of who Christ is, what he has done, and what he promises to accomplish. So a confession of faith means that, that I accept his offer of forgiveness and reconciliation. Not only do I accept that offer of forgiveness and reconciliation, 
I now submit my life to live wholly and completely for him. False teachers will, will often say, we worship the same Father, we believe in the same God, even though we might have a disagreement over Jesus. Here's the thing. To deny Jesus is to deny God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, verse number 30, I and my Father are and so if we say that we're all worshiping the same God, but those that worship their God reject Jesus Christ as God, then, then, then we're not worshiping the same God. That, that's a lie. It's not true. If you leave Jesus out of your worship, then you're not worshiping the one true God. And it's so important that we stay with the truth of the holy word of God. That's why John says in verse 24, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. Which is a good point to, to kind of highlight a, a tactic that's often used from, from the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist. And that is they try to entice you by coming along and say that they have something new from God. Some, some new revelation from the Father. I'm telling you if it's something new, then it's something not to be trusted. He said, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. Once again, we can see why it's so important for us to know the Word of God. Last week we talked about how knowing the Word of God helps us to discover and to know the will of God. So in order to know the will of God, we've got to know the Word of God. Knowing the Word of God will also help us to be able to detect false teaching. So we've got to know His Word so that we can know which teaching is correct and which teaching is in error, which ones we should follow, and which ones we should distance ourselves from. And so this marking of a false teacher, they depart from the fellowship. They deny the faith. And then thirdly, they try to deceive the followers or the faithful. They try to deceive the faithful. Verse number 26 says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Here's one of the reasons why John is writing this letter. He just tells us. He wrote to them so that he might be able to warn them that there are false teachers who are trying to infiltrate their assembly and trying to deceive or to lead them astray. And that's what that word deceive means. It means to lead astray. And so a false teacher is one who attempts to lead us away from Jesus, to, to, to lead us away from the glorious truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that, that Jesus came uh, to, to live a, a sinless life, to, to offer himself up as, as the sacrifice for us. False teachers will come along and they'll try to deny that or they'll try to teach against that. Or they'll, they'll, they'll try to teach that there are other ways to God. They'll, they'll try to say that there are other approaches that will get you to heaven. 
that there are other paths and we're all on this journey. It doesn't matter which path that you're on. As long as you're faithful to that path, we all end up in the same place at, the, at, at one time. No, that's not true. Not all paths lead to heaven. Only one path will get you before the Father in heaven. All other paths will take you to stand before the Father in hell. There's only one true path. And so that word deceived, carrying with it the idea of being led astray, that word is, is, is in the Greek, it is, it, it is a continuous action. So, so it's not just a one-time deception that the spirit of the Antichrist is trying to do. It's one that he is perpetually attempting to do. Always at work trying to deceive the, the faithful. Always at work trying to lead astray those that might want to follow God. Now you know that Satan is not a, an original thinker at all. He is a counterfeit. He's a fake. He can't come up with anything original on his own. I'll give you a couple examples. In this world, those that 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 follow God and, and, and in the church, we have ministers of, of the gospel, right? So while the church rightfully has ministers of the gospel, well, well Satan, he has counterfeit ministers. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, it says that for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So not only does Satan counterfeit with with counterfeit ministers, these counterfeit ministers preach a counterfeit gospel. Galatians chapter 1 verse 9 says, And we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be cursed. So Satan's strategy during this last hour is to plant the counterfeit wherever God plants the truth. That's why it's so important for us to be able to separate, to distinguish the teachings of Jesus from the teachings of the spirit of the Antichrist. And so how can we be able to detect false teaching? Now we're going to circle back around to verse number 20. How do we understand or how do we detect false teaching? The answer is by understanding our anointing. So let's go here for a moment. Every believer has received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Back in verse number 20 it says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. So again, that word anoint, reminds us of that Old Testament practice of setting someone apart for service. 
and it was limited to a few individuals in the Old Testament. For those of you that are taking notes, I'll give you some references so that you can look it up later. Uh, place like uh, Exodus chapter 28, you'll see the anointing of a priest. 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's an example of anointing of a king. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, you'll see an example of anointing of a prophet. So certain prophets, priests, and kings had oil poured upon their heads as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and that was setting them apart for service. Now, the New Testament believer is, is anointed, not with the symbol of the Holy Spirit, but with the Holy Spirit himself. And so unlike the Old Testament, where this anointing was limited to a few select chosen individuals, now every child of God receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christ follower, then you've already received that anointing, and you receive that anointing at salvation. And according to verse number 27 of 1 John chapter 2, that anointing abides in us. It remains, it's there. So, so why is this so important to understand? Look at verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and it's not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So let's be real clear. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit is that it teaches us, teaches the children of God. Jesus himself declared in John chapter 14, verse number 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How beautiful is that? He'll teach you all things. Not only will he teach you, he'll bring to your remembrance. Because that's so important. Because we're forgetful people. So the Holy Spirit is the teacher that God uses to instruct us. But these false teachers are actually attempting to take the place of the Holy Spirit. Now, it would be really important for me to to kind of like point out something really major here. And that's the fact that this does not deny, nor does this minimize the teaching ministry of the church. So the teaching ministry is a vital part of, of the gathering of believers. And the, the Holy Spirit gives the gift of teaching to certain individuals and, and those individuals that have that gifting, well, they spend hours upon hours of time praying and studying and preparing to be able to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. This does not minimize that function or that responsibility, but it does highlight the fact that what we teach must be tested. Must be tested. That's why it's important for you to be taking notes week in and week out. I said it before and I'll say it again. 
straight from the heart. It concerns me when you don't. It really does. It deeply concerns me when you don't take notes or you don't write some things down. Either you have a great memory or you assume that I'm not lying and telling you the truth. I appreciate that that expression of, of confidence and I'm don't ever want to intentionally teach something in error. But you need to have a record. You need to write some things down. Why? Because memory is faith. We forget things all the time. Some of us more than others. Did you know studies have been conducted? They say that Within one hour of hearing information, within one hour, you'll only retain about 50% of the information that you receive. Within an hour. These statistics are very encouraging for a pastor. Within 24 hours, you will retain about 30%. You'll lose, you'll forget 70% of new information that's shared with you. Within a week, you'll forget 90% of the information that's shared if you're just relying on memory. Which means, for me, I don't know why I work on new sermons every week. I think I could preach one sermon 10 times in a row, and then maybe it'll stick. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. All things. That's important to know because one of the tactics of the Antichrist is that false teachers have a way of neglecting the whole counsel of the Word of God. They will cherry pick, if you will, phrases or verses and, and teach from that without teaching the entire context to which that verse is found, and if you're not studying the Word of God and knowing the Word of God, then you'll be led astray by something that sounds theologically solid, but is completely corrupt to its core. Matthew chapter 4, verse number 4, Jesus says that man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, we are told that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So to ignore or to neglect any part or any portion of the word of God is an invitation to bring disaster into our lives. We need to know the whole counsel of the Word of God. That is why we preach and we teach through entire books at a time so that we can get the fullness of God's Word, so that we can have a solid foundation to build our lives upon. And so next week, we'll pick up from where we left off. We'll pick up in, from verse number 28. 
We'll go from 28 into chapter 3, probably around verse number 10. But up to this point, John has done a beautiful job in contrasting the difference between light and dark, between love and hate, and between truth and error. These are the themes that we're going to see continuously play out as we go through this entire book. John has explained that a genuine Christian life is one that is lived in pursuit of obedience. It means that, that we seek and we strive to walk in light, not in darkness, but that we would love, walk in love, not in hatred, that we would walk in truth, not in lies. So as we wrap up our time today, let me just ask you, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in love? Are you walking in the truth? Are you hungry for the word of God? Are you diligent in studying God's word so that you can discover his will? Studying his word so that you can know the original so it's easy to spot the counterfeit. Do you have a hunger for the word? My prayer is that if you don't, that today would be the start of a beautiful journey with the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, I'm so sorry for how we have neglected it how we have consistently just set it aside in our lives and only turn to it when it's convenient for us. Father, help to correct that in us. Give us a love for your word. Give us a, an unquenching appetite for it. And may we hunger for it, and yet may we be fulfilled by it, all in the same. And I thank you for this church season of life, the opportunities for ministry, for the gathering of those that believe. We've got to pray that as we leave here today, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we'd find conviction in our lives, that in response to all of it, that we would fully submit and surrender our lives unto you. Father, may you be pleased by what you see in us and from us. In Christ's name, I pray. 